From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, March 17th. Today, we're going to forego the usual headlines to make time for David Banks' interview with Ben McAdams, the former congressman and mayor of Salt Lake City, and now Impact Investor, who's helping cities turn their underutilized buildings and real estate into high-value and high-impact assets. Let's jump right into their conversation. I'm here with Ben McAdams. Um, you're the former mayor of Salt Lake City and also former representative from Utah. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Good to be on, David. Thank you. I'd love to hear your sort of uh, uh, journey from um, uh, public official, public servant, as it were, uh, to uh, uh, now impact investor and with an interesting new uh, and innovative fund idea. But let's just hear a little bit about how you, you sort of got to this point. Yeah, well, my wife likes to say that I've never been offered a pay cut I didn't take. So <laughs> I, uh, I graduated from law school, went to Columbia Law and was practicing with the big firm in New York. And I had an opportunity to come and work for the mayor of Salt Lake City doing his external affairs. So that was the first pay cut uh, moving into public service. And I did that for a number of years and I was elected to the Utah State Senate uh, and served in the Utah Senate for a term. Then I was elected mayor of Salt Lake County and did that for six years until I was elected to the United States Congress in 2018. And, you know, I just have a passion for public service. I love um, being in a position to give back to a community I love and, and really, you know, such a satisfying job to be the decision maker who can impact lives for, for the better. And you're from Salt Lake City, from Utah? Yeah, from Salt Lake, born and raised. Uh, went to New York to go to law school and stayed in New York and practiced law for, so we were in New York about eight years. Um, but you wanted to come back and uh, yeah, you were telling me that there was a little bit of a ceiling on your ambitions uh, because you're a, dem- a Democrat in a red state. I'm a Democrat in, in one of the most conservative states in the country. So yeah, it's always been, yeah, I would say you know, my first job in politics, as I mentioned, was working for the mayor of Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is a very progressive city in a very conservative state. And he wanted me to be the bridge between the city and our state legislature. So I had to, I took all of the slings and arrows, all the, you know, animosity was directed at me. And I really learned in that job to, to be a bridge, right? To, to um, translate what the legislature wanted back to my boss, the mayor, and back to the city council and vice versa, take what Salt Lake City wanted and, and present it in a way that was appealable to our legislature and try to build consensus between the two entities. And that really laid the groundwork for, for my, the rest of my political career when I, I decided to run for office of rep- being a Democrat representing a conservative state, winning you know, support from uh, working across the aisle to get things done and, and winning elections that I shouldn't win, right? So uh, my congressional district was probably the, the biggest one where the district was rated R plus 19. So that means a Republican has a 19 percentage point advantage. Uh, I won the election in 2018. It was the um, the most Republican district in the country that a Democrat won. Uh, so, you know, it was really climbing out of a pretty steep hole. And it's because I had d- done the work of, of building relationships and showing people that I'm not, I'm not a partisan person. I cared about outcomes and, and results and was willing to work with whoever I needed to to get something done. And did that put a target on your back for re-election? Oh, yeah, it sure did. I was, <laughs> you know, nationally, they don't like to lose a seat like that. So it meant that from... You know, it was actually before I was even sworn into office, they were running attack ads against me um, for the next cycle that was still two years off. So it's, um, yeah, it was certainly a, a tough job and one that I, you know, I spent my entire time. I think it's, it's kind of in the nature of who I am anyway, but reaching out, building coalitions, trying to um, get things done by, by getting a, a broader support. Wish we had more of that in Washington. Well, you know, impact investing often 
has uh, at least tries to maintain a kind of bipartisan appeal, right? Um, on the yeah. right, on the right, folks like um, market-based solutions. On the left, folks like social impact and social change, and um, uh, that doesn't always, you know, obtain now. There's, you know, there's it's gotten more politicized as everything has. But it sounds like you might have some insight into how to build those bridges. Yeah, absolutely. So my um, the first place I came to this, I'd just been elected mayor, and one of the things that I wanted to work on was early childhood education, right? We know empirically the data is so strong that if you can go and you invest in a child and help that child to succeed at their earliest years, that child will have, you know, your, your ability to impact positively the life of that child is greater the earlier you, you intervene. The other thing is you also save a lot of tax dollars. It's expensive to have a, a child fall through the cracks, right? That whether it's criminal justice, dropping out of school, you know, teenage pregnancy, violence, incarceration, all those things are so expensive. And yet I think largely avoidable if we, get, if we can just give a kid, a young kid, a, a good start on life. So I wanted to do an early childhood education program when I was mayor, something I campaigned on, I was passionate about. Um, our, um, our legislature didn't like it, right? In fact, they saw it as just another government program. Why do I have to put our kids in a program? You know, and I, I think I was trying to say these kids... The, the alternative for these kids is, you know, oftentimes dad's in jail, there's substance abuse in the home, these kids just watching TV at best case scenario, and um, we can do better and we can save tax dollars in the process. And so we had a hard time building coalitions around that. And so I was working with our United Way, the United Way of Salt Lake and other organizations stumbled on this concept of a pay for success or social impact bonds. And so we adopted that approach to say, this is a way that we can not only, we can use private capital, and show that government will pay if the outcomes are achieved. So if a child is succeeding and avoiding the harms that we had identified, that we would then use our government savings to repay that investment. So we, we built a lot of success around this pay-for-success notion of outcome-driven, evidence-based uh, interventions in government. I remember that was one of the early ones of, yeah. the, of the social impact bonds. It was, the time. Yeah. So the question is, did you repay the investors? We did, proudly so. We repaid every penny um, because the kids were succeeding. And we went on. So it was the, that was the second social impact bond ever, the first one in early child edu education. We did that one. And then I did the third and the fourth social impact bond. We did one around recidivism and one around homelessness. And we just found, you know, that was the way to build coalitions. I actually think it's the right thing to do anyway, that we should be accountable. We should, government should hold ourselves accountable. We shouldn't just be throwing money at problems without caring whether they work or not. And um, we should be rigorous in our interventions and we should use tax dollars wisely and, and sparingly and carefully and judiciously. And, and we did. And we found, you know, it was not only a mechanism to bring Republicans and Democrats together to get stuff done, but it was the right thing to do for the people we wanted to serve. Well, one of the things that came out around social impact bonds, as I recall, was um, that folks, when they, when they were successful, they said, well, why didn't we just uh, fund the prevention in the first place, which, which had been the argument of many of the proponents, yeah, sure, which sure. is that the prevention was under, under, underfunded. Um, but once that the, once it actually proved out, they're saying, "Well, why are these private investors making money when we could have just saved the money and, and, and funded the prevention in the yeah. first place?" Yeah, and my answer to that was, "Let's fund it then, right?" Yeah. So, but I, you know, I think that there was a benefit of um, its systems change. So, pay for success is not only bringing money to a problem that, that there wasn't bipartisan consensus around, but it's also changing how we do things and baking in to our our work outcomes and data and adherence to evidence based practices instead of just saying we're going to pick a program on the fly and fund it and never look back and never assess whether it's working or not. You have to bake into it that, um, what are you expecting to it that you'll achieve and did you actually achieve it? So you're, I think it's, 
an important systems change as much as anything. Important system change in government, but you're also sounding like much like an impact investor now. Yeah, I guess that was my that was my first uh, exposure to impact investing. And so, um, so you you le you left the Congress. Uh, uh... Yeah, not of my choice. I lost <laughs> lost my won my I won my first election to Congress by one fourth of one percent, and I lost by a pretty narrow margin, something like that too. So. And and so um, then you then you said okay I learned some things there about both um, both problems but also solutions yeah and so uh, how, how what how the path after after public office well I mean the first thing is I um, I think public service is in my genes I, I I like being in a position to give back and to and to you know I feel like I'm lucky in life for everything that I have and I want to share the things that I have to help other people lift themselves up too so. Um, you know, I left, left Congress, leaving public service, leaving elected office, but still committed to making a difference. And so that, I guess that's the first kind of thing. I'm going to take a step back, though, and talk about when I was mayor. So I get elected as mayor in 2012. I want to do this early childhood education program. It was about $500,000 that we needed. We were going to serve. Um, we, then we were bringing in some of the private capital, and that, too, overall was about a $5 million investment. Um, but we needed, you know, so I, I'm the newly elected mayor, I have a budget of $1.3 billion a year, an enormous budget. And I think, you know, somewhat facetiously, but okay, I got a billion dollars. I just want $500,000 for an early childhood education program. And there's no money to be found, right? So government budgeting is pretty rigid. Like I go to my staff and say, you know, $500,000 for an early childhood education program. What are you going to cut? Who are you going to make mad? How are you going to come up with this money? Because there's not there's not a penny that's not already programmed and already allocated to something. And so just remember that thinking about how important the work was, how strong the data was about this in investing in kids would have, was almost guaranteed to have positive outcomes and positive tax savings for the taxpayer. And yet it was hard to find a way to do it. It took several years to kind of figure out how to, how to fund this. So fast forward towards the end of my term as mayor, before I ran for Congress, and uh, I was asking, you know, looking at our government. So government budgeting looks at it's cash flow. How much money are we bringing in? What are we spending it on? And that's, that's the exercise that I had as a mayor. What government doesn't look at is the balance sheet, right? So I could Google pretty quickly and tell you what the balance sheet, what the net worth is of Microsoft. Um, I could probably sit down pretty quickly and figure out my personal net worth. I look at my, how much do I owe on my mortgage? What's my house worth? I still have student loans. Um, you can figure out your net worth, right? Um, what is the net worth of Salt Lake City? That's a foreign concept. No one thinks about government that way. What mm -hmm. is the net worth? We know what the U.S. budget is. What's the net worth of the United States? Nobody has the answer to that question because we don't track what government owns and what, what happens with our assets. So when I was mayor, I said, I want to figure out what, what, our, what our enterprise of government is worth. So we started with doing an inventory of all real estate that is owned, um, government-owned real estate in Salt Lake County. And um, there's a lot of it. We actually found uh, 44 square miles of government real estate that was, we said, commercially viable. So there's some real estate that we're never going to touch, like our backcountry, our beautiful mountains that we want to preserve in their natural state. But commercially viable, we're talking parking lots in downtown, vacant lots here and there. We found 44 square miles of real estate. And we estimated... Did well, some, what's, how many square miles in Salt Lake? Uh, maybe uh, trick, 700, trick 700 square mile county. Oh, so a pretty yeah. decent chunk. Yeah. Of the, yeah. Of the, of the county owned yeah. a pretty decent chunk. That of had it. commercial viability. Yeah. And then we estimated what it was worth. So keep in mind, my budget was $1.3 billion a year. 
we estimated the value of our real estate portfolio was $15 billion. So there's all of this. So, I, you know, I say that I want to do an early childhood education program and there's no money lying under the mattress. And then six years later, I find out there's actually money under our mattress and it's real estate that is just forgotten that we bought it a hundred years ago for $10. And so we just have in our computer systems now this parcel that's worth $10 when it's really worth $5 million. And, um, so and, and is, was it getting, you know, parking fees or was it getting some, some of them, rent yeah, some from of them, some, some tenants? Some of them get parking fees. Some of them get rent. Some of them do nothing. And we just have to go in and clean up graffiti and trash. And we're spending money mm -hmm. to just have this land that's not. Sometimes, sometimes governments even don't even know that they own it. And they're like trying to crack down on an absentee landlord. And lo and behold, the absentee landlord is government. And presumably, this is not unique to Salt Lake City. This is every city no. in the country. Yeah, it's. Uh, we've since then we've. I've started working with other cities to figure this out. So we did. We had our fifteen billion dollar portfolio. The other, the next thing we did is we did a data layer and looked at private properties within five hundred feet of a government property. What's the average value? And then we, you know, backed into our number. What what could our portfolio be worth if we did something with it? So say you've got that parking lot that's getting parking fees. But next door, you've got a 15-story office building. What if we did with our property what everybody else is doing with theirs? What's our portfolio worth at that point? We estimated that our portfolio could be worth $45 billion. And so, yeah, it's a, you know, maybe that parking lot's needed, but maybe that parking lot, maybe we should do a, a long-term land lease and lease out the land to a developer who's going to put office space or affordable housing or market rate housing on that. And we collect a million dollars a year off of land lease. And, you know, we're probably getting $100,000 a year off of parking revenue. Maybe we could be getting a million dollars a year off of a land lease for an office building. So you do one of those deals and you can fund your early childhood That's education exactly program. Right. Yep. Over and over again, right? It's an ongoing revenue stream. Yeah. So it was around that time, actually, that I got elected for Congress. I thought it was a great idea, but then my career went in a different direction. I had developed all these skills about working across the aisle, balancing budgets, thinking creatively of finance. So I go to Washington where none of that matters, right? They don't, they don't do that type of stuff. They don't balance budgets or work across the aisle. Um, so it was after I lost my election in 2020, and I came back and I said, I still want to make a difference. I got to make a living, but I want to make a difference. And I um, came back to this idea that I kind of left when I got elected mayor and said, I think it's such a transformative idea. Is there something here, right? So I created a policy incubator. We call it the putting assets to work policy incubator. We solicited applications from cities across the country, got a bunch of applications. We selected six cities that we're going to work with. So I've been working with them for about a year now. Um, Atlanta, Cleveland, Annapolis, Harris County, Texas, which is the Houston area, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Lancaster, California. So six jurisdictions. We went in and we mapped all of their assets too. All of them have billions of dollars of real estate that is under, unused or underutilized. And, um, and they have incredible needs, right? So we're, um, the next phase is, is the, to get into the impact strategy is repositioning that parking lot into something that's generating greater revenue um, it's a, a marriage of public real estate and private capital. So as I understand it, as you've been explaining it to me, the, the city has, as you said, lots of assets in the form of real estate, not so much in the form of financial capital. Right. Um, uh, private investors put the financial capital in, the city contributes the real estate into a project fund, like some yeah. kind of LLC mm -hmm. of some sort to... to yeah, to, some to type of joint venture joint agreement. Venture. Yeah. And then uh, the... The development happens. The city's a, 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 a got a stake in the in the new in the new asset. 
Yeah. I, I mean, there are uh, different ways that you can do it as we're talking with these different governments. So, so let's say they own a parcel of land that's worth $5 million and you want to do a housing development. And so you're going to need $20 million of equity to do that housing development. If the government contributes their land, 5 million of land, they're 25% of the capital. And uh, you bring in private capital, there's the other 75% and you build your housing development and then you rent it out and uh, you start splitting the profits and government gets 25% of the profits off of that. And that can add up to some real money, right? So is the notion that this will be a, a boon, obviously, to sort of city finances? That's obvious. But is it also going to be like a way to create affordable housing or or health clinics or other kinds of social yeah. infrastructure that might be needed? I mean, I think you can do it for anything, right? My passion is impact and, and making a difference. So I'm going to work with those people who want to do something impactful. So, you know, some of the governments we're talking to, they want to do affordable housing. So they may say, we want to forego our revenue as in an exchange, you give us an equal amount of buy-down in the rent. So you're going to create 25% of the units in the building are going to be affordable in exchange for our giving up our revenue, right? Or, um, or it might be that, look, we want to take 100% of our revenue our, and we're going to use that to then fund an early childhood program or a, a daycare or other things in uh, clean energy or climate, right? We're going to fund that. We're going to take the money off of this piece of land that was doing nothing before and we finally have the revenue we've always wanted to invest in early childhood. And uh, have you done any deals yet? We have um, a few deals that are close. So we're um, negotiating with government that term sheet, what it looks like in the agreement, and excited to um, excited to do it. We have some deals that we did when I was mayor, right? So when I was mayor, we had um, we needed to build new offices for our prosecutors. And they were in an expensive leased building that was far away from the courthouse. And we wanted to locate them. We wanted to own and we wanted to locate them close to the courthouse. And we bought this parcel that was next to the courthouse, next to a transit stop. And instead of building a two-story low-rise building, we picked the least desirable part of the land, the mid-block, and we built a five-story building and saved a parcel on the corner for um, an office development. We have executed an agreement with an office developer for it's $450,000 a year plus uh, escalators for inflation for 99 years. So we're going to be renting this out for, you know, we paid, I think, $5 million for the land and we're collecting $500,000 a year for 99 years. Um, and we can use that revenue then to invest in criminal justice reform. Is there something that, you know, like whenever I hear a good idea, I always wonder, like, why didn't somebody do it before? Is there something that sort of runs counter to the grain of city officials or, or public elected officials or something to start to become a kind of real estate moguls? Yeah, I think I think there's a that's what we're trying to figure out in the policy incubator is why is this not happening? The first thing is it is happening in different contexts. So Europe and Asia, they do this. This is the sovereign wealth fund, right? They have professional asset managers who manage their real estate and, uh, you know, Hong Kong built their entire mass transit system without tax dollars by saying, we know when we put in a transit stop, we're going to 10 times the value of the land. So we're going to own the land and put in a transit stop and use that to pay for building our transit, right? So it's done. Uh, I think it's done in the U.S. in a different context. You think about um, government pensions, right? It's a similar concept. We take cash out of our employee paychecks and we don't put it in a safe or put it under the mattress. We hand it over to somebody else to professionally manage it. And they make investment decisions and they'll invest in REITs or they'll invest in startups and hedge funds and they spread out and diversify their risks. And we expect them to take the cash that we gave them out of our employee's paycheck to manage it for return. So when that employee retires, we can pay their pension. 
So we have this mindset in government of hiring a third-party asset manager to maximize the return on our investments. We just don't do it with real estate. Uh, before I, my career branched into public service, I taught law. Uh, I taught securities law at the University of Utah Law School. And I would always start, I started my first class by saying, telling a joke that two economists are walking down the street, right? And so one economist turns to the other and says, hey, is that a $10 bill up there on the road ahead? And the other one says, no, it's not a $10 bill. If it was a $10 bill, somebody would have picked it up already. So, um, you know, I think about that in this context, right? If there really is billions of dollars of real estate sitting there waiting to be unlocked. Somebody would have picked it up already. Somebody would have picked it up already. Um, why haven't they? And as I've dug into it, I think um, in some extent it happens. Like this deal that we did with our prosecutors, it's not uncommon for a government to do a long-term land lease on some surplus property. In that case, you bought the land. It wasn't, we we it, bought it, the it land, wasn't land, built our building, our, our and, then, yeah. and then leased out the other piece of it. Yeah, yeah. It happens. Um, it's just, I think there are a few things. It's not, government doesn't have a balance sheet. We don't know what we own. And it's hard to have an expectation of managing what you own if you don't even know what you own, right? Um, we, I think government bureaucracy, we're just not, we're not asset managers. We are, uh, so I went back to Salt Lake County after I, um, I went back to my former employees um, after I left Congress and said, you know, what's happening with this? And they're, they excited. We're like, we're really working to unlock this talented, smart people who are working to unlock it. And, and they said a couple of things have happened. The first thing is um, COVID hit, right? So we've been so busy putting shots in arms, we haven't had a chance to really advance the initiative. And I guess, I think that's understandable. But can you imagine if you went to your retirement system, your pension fund advisors and said, how's our pension fund doing? And they said, oh, I don't know. I haven't looked in two years. I've been so busy with COVID. I don't know. I haven't followed our investments or even your fidelity account, right? If your fund manager just said, we haven't even like done anything with it for two years. We've been too busy. That's just, that's success. That's fireable. That's, uh, it is fireable, <laughs> but not in government. In government, it's understandable. And so I just think it, maybe it's because we're not asset managers. It's, don't, it's not what we own. I think procurement gets in the way when we do think about it. Well, the, the only approach to really move something like this forward is to have the parks and rec director who's identified, let's say they've identified a piece of land next to a municipal golf course that could do something to generate value. They don't know the first thing about real estate, nor should they, right? Um, but we asked the, the process for doing a public-private partnership is for that golf director to write an RFP about something they don't know, all while they're overworked and underpaid doing other stuff, and then negotiate with a sophisticated real estate developer who comes in and runs circles around them. I just don't think we've got the right mechanisms in government to do this. And that's um, what we're figuring out right now. So some expertise to help the, gov help yeah. the government deploy their assets in, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, when you were talking, one thing that makes me think is uh, the assets are obviously the real estate assets and, and everything else, but the real assets in the city are the people in the city. And uh, uh, if we don't have a balance sheet even of the of the of the of the of the real estate assets, we certainly don't have a balance sheet of the human assets. No, um, and uh, I don't know whether there's any anything you can think of to. to well, you're getting you're square getting, up that balance. Yeah, sheet. You're getting into stuff I really love, which is thinking about that. Like, what is what is some of the best? A well-educated population is an asset for any government, right? And so, if you start thinking about using your assets to improve your other assets, using your real estate to have an educated workforce. Uh, you know, but what's happening right now is we don't have cash flow, so we're not investing in our schools. We're not investing in early childhood. We're 
you know, we're draining these programs that are actually, we're, we're watching our, our real assets, our people, um, the quality of that asset is degrading because we're not investing in keeping them healthy and educated and happy. It's, I mean, even if you take it up to another level of, of abstraction, you know, there, there's a, certainly in, in public finance in cities and states and even the federal government, there's a kind of scarcity uh, uh, approach. And what you're talking about is really there's a kind of abundance if you, if you unlock it. There's, a, there's, there's an abundance of human talent. There's an abundance of, of resources, of, of assets that are just sitting around, underused. Um, and, and yeah, I look at our $45 billion portfolio, and let's say you got a third of that into some mechanism that generated a return, which is no small feat. You know. But let's say you got a $15 billion generating return. And let's say you got a 3% return, which is also probably fireable. It's not very good, right? But if you got a 3% return off of a third of our real estate portfolio, you're generating $450 million a year in new revenue without raising taxes. That's, that's more revenue than we generate from property taxes, right? So you're funding education, you're solving affordable housing, you're solving homelessness, you are investing in roads and bridges and filling potholes. And then you still got enough money left to cut taxes. You know, it's, it's real revenue that's out there if we can just figure out the right systems and then bring in the private capital to do it. That last part might have gotten you reelected. The cut yeah. taxes part. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben McAdams. This is fascinating. Good luck to you in this. And we're eager to hear how it all turns out. Thank you. Great to talk with you. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Ben McAdams, David Bank, and as always, our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, totally free, directly at impactalpha.com. Want to go deeper? Grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning morning brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. Until next time, take good care.